Today's episode is brought to you by the Academy for Virtual Teaching, a community of creative entrepreneurs building proficient, profitable, and professional online teaching businesses. In the Academy for Virtual Teaching's Pro Membership, they can help you develop the skills needed to organize, film, edit, and add online education to your business model. They invite you to join their community of supportive colleagues as they share their creativity with students around the world. So check it out at the Academy for Virtual Teaching. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 256 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about paint by numbers with my guest, Rachel Austin. Rachel has a background in graphic and web design. She founded her paint by number kit company, L. Cray, in 2017 out of her desire to create a nostalgic product from her illustrations that customers could interact with and that would spur their own creativity. Rachel's company seeks to reduce its impact on the environment by carefully sourcing eco-friendly components that are locally and USA-made whenever possible. Elcray's custom paint colors are mixed from USA-made acrylics, and their kits are assembled with the help of a small staff in Portland, Oregon. Elcray's kits made O Magazine's list of best made-in-America products in the summer of 2021. In 2023, Rachel launched successful collaborations with iconic illustrator Mary Englebright and Academy Award-nominated film studio Leica. In the past seven years, Elcray has become a premier manufacturer of American-made kits being sold in over 500 gift shops nationwide. Rachel Austin, welcome. Hi, Abby. Thanks so much for having me. I am very excited to talk to you. I'm super impressed with your business. I have been loving watching the YouTube um, <laughs> videos that you create, learning more about how to paint, and also just looking at all of your inspiring and beautiful products. So I'm fascinated by this, and I'm really excited to learn more about you. So just first, the name El Cray. I did take yeah. French in high school. <laughs> so okay. um, tell us about how you name this. And uh, it is French, right? It is. And you're ahead of me because I did not take French in high school, nor <laughs> did I know any French when I named my business. Uh, yeah. So funnily enough, there's actually another artist in Portland named Rachel Austin. Um, oh. last, last name spelled a little differently, but I knew going into this uh, venture that I wasn't going to be able to use my name for the company. And I I wanted the name to... I also wasn't exactly sure what the company was going to be. <laughs> so I had a lot of ideas um, for products and I wasn't quite sure where, where I was going to settle um, with what products were going to be workable and scalable and all of that. So I knew I wanted the name to be broad enough that it could encompass whichever direction the company took with its product line. So, and I've always been fascinated with um, all things French. I've I've been to France three or four times um, and absolutely love the aesthetic and the language is so beautiful. So I chose El Cray, which means she creates 
in French, which again, I thought was broad enough to encompass, you know, whatever ended up happening with the products. Do people understand it when they see it? I mean, what are, because it is kind of (laughs) unusual. I have a lot of ease in it. Yeah. So I'm wondering (laughs) if you get common like mispronunciations or misunderstandings of what the name represents. I remember um, talking to my friend I was um, who knew some French and we were trying to, she was helping me try to figure out a phrase that would work for a business name. And, and at one point I was like, is this a really bad idea to give my business a French name? Like, is anybody going to be able to say it? And we were kind of like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's something that means something to you. And, you know, who cares if people know how to say it? If this business really takes off, it'll just be kind of a funny joke that no one can say your business name. So that's kind of what it's become. Um, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, people say um, El Cree a lot. People think that my name is L and that Cree is my last name. So there is um, a bit of a education process around that, but um, it's worked out pretty well. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. And so you're in, um, in Oregon. Did you grow up in the Pacific Northwest? I did. I grew up in a small rural suburb of Portland. So I haven't, uh, traveled far from my roots. Um, we, we were in, uh, kind of the country, uh, growing up. So I didn't have a lot of neighbors, Um, I went to a really small Christian school growing up. I didn't have a lot of friends around. And so I really think that, um, you know, I kind of, the creativity part of my childhood really flourished. I didn't have a lot else to do, to be honest. (laughs) So, um, And, you know, my parents were very supportive of that. Um, There's definitely some artistic gene um, that kind of came down from my my grandpa on my dad's side, who was an amazing artist. Um, he was actually trained as a draftsman. So by career, he drew um, technical illustrations, a lot of like machinery parts um, and little diagrams about how these parts would fit together. And my dad has these illustrations. I've seen them and they're just incredible. So I think from that side of the family, I got both um, uh, an artistic uh, sense and and also um, the meticulous gene, um, which is runs very strong on my dad's side. Um, my dad did not get the the artistic part of that from his father, but he definitely got the um, the meticulous part of that. And he also um, is an entre- has been an entrepreneur, had his own firm for forty years. So, um, on my and what what did he do? Uh, my dad is a CPA. Okay. And um, still practicing to to some extent, although he sold his business um, a few years ago. Uh, he has been instrumental in helping me uh, with my business. I think for starters, he saved me thousands of dollars on, you know, um, accounting consultation and and just helping me look at my finances in the way that they that they need to be looked at as a business owner. Um, so on, on my mom's side, my mom really nurtured my creativity. I would say, um, she, although not overtly artistic is very creative. And I always remember 
her little toll paintings on everything growing up. There were just little toll painted daisies on everything in our house. <laughs> so, and she was a decorator. She would um, constantly be re- rearranging the living room, you know, um, br- uh, bringing new decorations into the house. She liked to um, decorate with a lot of greenery at the holidays. And so I just, there was definitely a sense that your environment, it was important that your environment environment was aesthetically pleasing and calming and a space where, you know, you felt at home and, and, and was a great environment for creating as well. And you became an illustrator. Did you um, know that you wanted to go to art school, like in high school, did you go to art school or what was the path? Yeah. So um, I didn't go to art school. I'm a self-trained graphic designer. I actually, I, I was, I was very artistic in high school. Again, I went to a really small school. So, um, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't an art program, uh, per se of any kind. Um, but you know, I became the one that painted all the, the posters for school events and, um, was in charge of, you know, decorating the wall for spirit week and, and any opportunity I had to express my creativity, um, I'd be the one to sign up for that. Um, I, uh, really enjoyed, um, sort of creating my own personal aesthetic in junior high and high school. I remember I would, lay out my outfits in, on my bedroom floor each night before, um, you know, before the next day of school. And, and I would make jewelry for that specific outfit that I'd put together. And I'd try, I'd try to make my outfits unique every single day. So I wouldn't, wouldn't ever wear the same thing, but I would find, you know, weird random accessories. Like my dad gave me a bunch of his old ties and I'd cut those up and make belts and sashes and things. And, um, and my, uh, childhood bedroom floor to this day, my parents still live there, um, is covered in, in glue gun, um, in glue, hot glue (laughs) dots all over the floor because I would just, you know, kind of, yeah, I was really obsessed with making jewelry for my outfits each night. So, uh, by the time I was 13, I had started my first business, which was a jewelry business, because I was just obsessed with making things and loved the idea of selling things that I made. Um, so at age 13, I started doing little craft bazaars and um, outdoor and indoor. Those were the years where they were called bazaars instead of like craft shows or maker fairs. You know, <laughs> it was the 80s. Um and early nineties at that point. So, um, yeah, I definitely knew that I wanted to do something artistic, but I really didn't think that, that I would want to do something full time. Um, I, I think I kind of thought that my creative outlets would be my hobbies and not necessarily like a full-time career path. My mom told me that I, um, when I was trying to decide what to do for, school after high school that that I should look into graphic design. And I think just because my mom told me I should do that, I decided I definitely wasn't going to do that. So <laughs> um, 
that sort of backfired because that would have been a great path for me. It actually ended up being my path, um, whether I took the classes for it or not. So um, I did start out as a business or I started out as an art major um, and finished as a business major. So both of those tracks ended up serving me well in, in the long run. Right. Okay. And where did, did you go to college in Oregon as well? I did. I started out at community college. Um, I bounced around a little bit, uh, but ended up at Portland State okay. um, to complete my my undergrad. Yeah. All right. And so um, when you graduated, I mean, it sounds like you had that entrepreneurial streak from an earlier age, but did you go um, directly into starting a business or did you have some jobs that were you know, more more typical first? Yeah, definitely more typical. I, I wouldn't have been brave enough, I think, at that point just to launch out and, and try something on my own. Um, but I had very good organizational skills. And so I started out as an executive assistant um, for a nonprofit, actually for the Salvation Army Divisional Headquarters here in Portland. And um, I, I, I knew I wanted to work in nonprofit work at that point. Um, and again, just the creativity was sort of an outlet on the sidelines. Um, but I but I started out as an executive assistant. And then um, at some point, the freelance graphic designer that they were working with, that relationship ended. And I saw an opportunity and I, I said, hey, what, how about if I try making that flyer, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so at first I, I was designing things in Word. And then I moved on to publisher, and then I moved on to page maker. And this was right about the time I think InDesign was like brand new at that point. The Adobe Creative Suite was was just sort of coming out, and um, or maybe it had been out for a while, but but um, Quark had been mm-hmm. the predominant design program if you were if you were if you went to school for graphic design you learned quark um which i had never learned any of these things so it really didn't matter to me at that point (laughs) but um yeah i did just kind of teach myself some software and by the time i was done at the salvation army i felt ready to actually look for a for a job in graphic design um even though I still barely knew the software and had only created a few professional pieces, um, you know, I I think I just kind of have a fake it till you till you make it attitude. <laughs> so I started marketing myself as a graphic designer, and so the next job I got was for um, a local arts organization, and I did work. Um, in-house for eight years as their graphic designer and just kind of picked up the technical skills along the way by looking at the prior graphic designers files, quite honestly. Um, I kind of knew like artistically where I wanted to go, but technically I I really just kind of, I would go home after a work day and think, okay, I couldn't figure out how to do this in the software today. So let me like figure out how to go back tomorrow and fix what I couldn't do. Um, so yeah, that was my segue into graphic design. And what did you, I'm, I'm thinking you probably learned some things at that arts organization because you were there for eight years yeah. um, around, I mean, it's not the same as running a for-profit business, but mm-hmm. I'm guessing there were some aspects of that job that were helpful to you when you did branch out on your own. 
Definitely, because I, you know, I was I was housed inside the marketing department, um, which shared space with the development department, and you know, those um, are the are the the departments inside an organization like that that you know really there was a lot for me to learn from. Um, so I I gained some marketing skills. I had I think I had taken a a marketing class, you know, in college on the way to get my business administration degree. But I got to see it in real time. I got to be part of a creative team, uh, which was a really unique experience and and a creative team inside a creative organization. So, um, you know, I felt, again, it was definitely a fake it till you make it kind of scenario where I felt pretty insecure about what I was bringing to the table, but they, you know, they were just great about including me. I got to be a part of some amazing photo shoots and like concepting of, um, you know, sort of the aesthetic for the season uh, in terms of marketing. Um, And yeah, that was a really fantastic experience uh, for me in my growth as a as a graphic designer specifically. And so what made you make the leap to entrepreneurship uh, in the end? Yeah, good question. Um, so after after working inside um, the arts organization for about eight years, I did go freelance with graphic design and um, took on some additional local arts organizations and nonprofit work. And, you know, I you... you you do that freelance work for long enough and you start feeling like, okay, I'm ready to act. I feel like I'm, I've done client work. I'm re- I really want to do something that, that I feel like represents my own aesthetic and right. I want to put some, something out there with my name on it. And I'm, I was just ready to make that transition. And I really hadn't done, I had done some illustration work as part of the, the, the journey through uh, graphic design, but I really hadn't done a lot. And this was another like fake it till you make it kind of scenario where I just decided like, you know what, I'm transitioning to, um, I'm an illustrator now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm... Uh, and I'm, and I'm just going to figure this out. I'm just going to keep trying till I get it. And so I, you know, Another thing to say here, which I think is really important, is that, you know, at, at this point in my life, you know, I'd, I'd been in marketing, nonprofit work, graphic design development for about 15 years. And um, I still don't know that I would have branched out on my own and starting a business without the right supports in place. I'm very risk averse, actually, by nature. Um, and and I, I had been married for a number of years and, you know, my husband had a great job with great health insurance. And I think that's what really gave that and just sort of the frustration with client work. And that sort of gave me the security I, I felt I needed to try something like this. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Lyric Kennard of the Academy for Virtual Teaching. I'm Lyric Montgomery Kennard with the Academy for Virtual Teaching. And tell us a little bit about the Academy for Virtual Teaching. What's it all about? We are a private membership community where makers, creatives come together and we learn how to build businesses 
teaching online. So we teach people tech, we teach people marketing, all the things they need in order to add online education as part of their business model. And that's so important. There's so many exciting opportunities for people to reach audiences all over the world, but it can be kind of overwhelming as well. Absolutely. The thing is, it's global and online education can be live or it can be a passive income stream where you put up on-demand classes and they kind of make money in your sleep. Absolutely. And you have a sort of tiered membership. There's a free version, but there's also a paid version. So I'd love to hear more about that one. Correct. Our pro business membership level offers ongoing education, um, business development workshops. We have a huge library of email marketing workshops, how to create a promotional video workshops, um, how to use Canva, photography workshops, like how to take product photos, how to take a headshot, business administration workshops, Zoom workshops, like everything you need. We have it in a huge library. We also have all of our guest seminar archives. We have speakers come in live every month who have something to offer as far as business tips for our membership. That's great. Okay. So where can we go to learn a little bit more about this, explore it, and um, possibly sign up as well. You can go to academyforvirtualteaching.com or a the number four vt.com and look at our different membership levels there. Wonderful. Thank you, Lyric. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much to the Academy for Virtual Teaching. And now back to my conversation with Rachel. I um, saved up some money from, you know, the last few freelance graphic design gigs I did. And I had a pot of like $10,000 um, that I was going to use to start some kind of business that I knew was going to be products based on my illustrations. But that's about all I knew at that point. So I spent a period of maybe six to eight months just kind of working on a business plan and the process of putting myself through that actually helped me figure out what I wanted this product line to look like. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't a paint by number product line at the beginning. I mean, I had about five different ideas of um, things I thought I could create for my illustrations, um, you know, party decor, um, you know, cards and, um, other kinds of, of products that weren't as interactive, perhaps, as paint by number. And when the paint by number idea came around, I, the more I thought about it, the more I thought like this, this is, this is awesome because it's provides me an opportunity to be uh, creative and also pass that creativity on. To somebody else through a product that they can interact with. And once I made that connection, it was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is a strong possibility in terms of um, how, how this business is going to develop. Had you done paint by numbers? I mean, what, like, how did that idea of what you could use your illustrations for come to you? Did you see a kit somewhere or? Yeah. I don't know. How, like, was it, do you remember like the moment where you were like, oh, paint by number? Yeah, I do actually. Um, 
I I hadn't done much paint by number as a kid for some reason. I um, paint by number just, you know, I don't remember ever having a kit because so many people my age and older do remember that as a very prominent part of their childhood. Um, but for some reason, that wasn't for me. I just, I, I was an estate sailor and I loved all things vintage. And so, you know, I would go estate sailing and then see these great vintage paint by number kits that were, you know, fully painted, displayed on people's walls for the taking at that point um, uh, from the 50s and the 60s. And I just loved the aesthetic. Um, I think about that time, that aesthetic, you know, sort of the mid-century aesthetic was very popular. And so I was drawn to to those like anyone would be. Um, but I was I think I was actually a state sailing with one of my sisters um, as I was trying to develop these product ideas and we stumbled on like a vintage poster. It was actually um, a, a magazine ad uh, for, I don't, it might've been Jansen Swimwear. No, I don't think it was Jansen Swimwear, but it was a magazine ad featuring Esther Williams um, and she was underwater and she was in this beautiful, very, balletic pose and it was so just like quintessential 1955 you know it was so beautiful and I and I looked at it and I was like ah I want to recreate this and then I thought oh yeah like I could combine these things I could combine the love of the vintage aesthetic combine the love of of mid-century paint by number and kind of illustrate in that style and so that's how that came that idea came about. Okay. So what were the beginning steps? I mean, I'm interviewing you now. You're sitting in a space. It looks like maybe a storeroom or warehouse space. And it's got these jars or squeeze bottles, I guess, of paint in every single color imaginable behind you. So yeah. clearly this has grown into a really, you know, significant business. But what was it like in those early days? What were the first few designs and how did yeah. you I mean, to me, I would be like, uh, okay, I need to get this. I need to draw it. And then I need to get it printed somewhere. And on what sub surface, like board or canvas, or yeah. I don't know, I'm just trying to think how I would even get started. Yeah, I think you are, you are thinking of some of the same questions I had <laughs> seven years ago. So yeah, I did start with just opening up Illustrator. And just to see whether I could figure out how to illustrate in this style. Um, because my most of my career experience was in graphic design, my inclination was actually to go to, to Illustrator rather than to go to pen and paper, pencil and paper, and um, sketch something. So I did... Um, I, I started putting feelers out for for actually the logistics of how to do paint by number. I, I found some, you know, wholesale art outlets online, ordered some paint, ordered some sample brushes, um, contacted uh, as local as I could find a company that would print on canvas and could give me some kind of bulk discount and kind of sent some samples off for, for printing. But really I was still trying to figure out whether I could pull it off. Um, uh, you know, with my skill set. So I was also really um, 
a little bit, I was a little bit nervous about like copyright issues and I wasn't quite sure like, okay, how do I, um, cause I hadn't produced a lot of original art. So, you know, with graphic design, you kind of, you know, you, you source a little bit from other inspirations. And I knew I was going to be doing that again with this. And I just wanted to be really careful that I wasn't, you know, I was doing everything in a way that was going to set the business up for success. So um, when I first started, I really was interested. And again, I think because of the Esther Williams ad that I had seen, but I was really interested in um, the uh, female form figures, you know, very like classic um, for my art history background. And so I, um, I also have a vast costume collection. <laughs> and so I, uh, went, went up to my attic, brought down some, some dresses and some costumes, actually put them on and kind of did some posing and had my husband take some photographs. And actually my very first canvas kits, I had five that I started with. Um, I think almost all of them were drawn from photography of, you know, myself wearing And that's art. surely a great way to avoid any kind of copyright issue. <laughs> it's an original photo of your body. So there's no, exactly. no contentious issue there. Yeah, exactly. No one could say I stole that from anywhere. So, <laughs> um, but, you know, as it turned out, those weren't the most popular designs. Um, and we moved on from that pretty quickly. But yeah, so once I had kind of played around with some of the the samples I got back and and I and I took the the paints that I had sourced and they were they were just primary colors um and I started once I had a couple designs I started mixing paints in my basement to kind of come up with a color palette for each design. And like I said back then the kits were like 12 by 16 so they were much larger than the kits that I am currently making. Um, I started uh, going to uh, craft shows and, um, you know, in the summertime, I did all the outdoor markets and uh, started on Etsy pretty early on just to kind of see what, you know, you're still just in the testing phase at this point. You're trying to see what people are going to respond to. And I figured out pretty quickly that the project time was too long. Because um, how long is it? You said twelve by sixteen. How long yeah. does that take to do? I mean, it's at least eight hours. It's at least twenty hours. I mean, I think right. twenty hours is like amount. Yeah. You know, like knitting a sweater, maybe, or like making a quilt. It's a really right. significant time investment. It is, and one of the great things about paint by number is that you know it is something that pretty much anyone can do without even learning a new skill, like you said, because we all know how to hold a paintbrush, you know, because we all did that to some extent in childhood. Um, so yeah, I think, um, I, in, in the experience of being at craft shows and, you know, also my packaging wasn't great. It was just like a corrugate box with like a sticker on the front. And so it was, people didn't understand what was inside the box, uh, and then once they understood what was in the si- inside the box and said, well, how long does that take? And I said, oh, probably about 20 hours, you know, they would just walk, walk away. away. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. So, they're, they're thinking two hours, I think is what they're uh, thinking. They're thinking yeah. two hours and you look at the design and it's very stylistic and it looks very simple. And in looking at it, you would never expect it would take you that long to paint. Right. So, um, yeah, so I... 
I, I pretty quickly within six months, I think realized that I needed to adjust the product a little bit. And I, and I still didn't have very good packaging at that point. I scaled down to an eight by 10 uh, canvas um, and figured out that another trick to getting project time down, because even an eight by 10 canvas could be a 10 to 12 hour project. Um, I, I realized that, you know, there are also some components of painting a canvas from top to bottom that are pretty boring um, when you're talking about backgrounds and, and that kind of thing. And I realized, hey, I could pre-print pre a background, um, which would also give the finished product, you know, a better chance of being successful because you've got something in the background that's already done that's perfect and then all the user has to worry about is the prominent colors in the foreground and um, you don't have to paint off the edge you know all four edges of the painting you're just kind of focused on the central subject matter which is more interesting um, and especially back then because I was doing a lot of faces and and figures and that kind of thing so um, yeah, so we made that shift and that really was, I think, instrumental in, in the business sort of starting to grow. So then I was saying, people were saying, what's the project time? And I would say three to five hours. And they were like, oh yeah, oh, three to five. Okay. Yeah, I could give that a shot. And because this was like 2017, 2018, you know, this was before the pandemic, before, you know, paint by number was on everyone's radar again. Um, and so that was the right project time for where people were at with their understanding of this craft. Um, and was it, was it disappointing to you? Like I could see, um, and I've had this experience myself, a feeling of like, but I like it in this bigger <laughs> format. I like it where you have to paint the entire thing, even if the background painting part is boring. That's like pure the way it should be in my, you know, design vision. And the fact that like consumers are saying it's too long or it's too hard or this part is boring or I don't, you know, whatever you know, well, they need to just grow up and <laughs> like it the way I, you know what I mean? I feel like there can be a, a, a feeling of like, um, frustration or even resentment, like uh, the, yeah. the consumer doesn't want the vision that you initially had. I think on the artistic side of things, I probably did feel that way a little bit, but I've got enough of this entrepreneurial side to my brain where I was like, okay, problem, let's solve it. Yeah. Um, you know, like <laughs> the only way this is going to be successful is if this is the right product for the market. So, um, yeah, so it wasn't that hard for me to make that shift actually. Uh -huh. And I had, had, I was already problem solving around like how to offer classes, um, locally. I, I had been asked to do a class for a local craft shop and I was like, oh gosh, well, I'm going to have to scale this project way down. Um, and so that also sort of helped me problem solve through that um, and make the product something that was just more accessible to more people. And it sounds like you started really with these faces and female forms but then those weren't the most popular motifs. So right. what were the most popular motifs? Yeah. I mean, I would say I, I also just absolutely am enamored with the still life 
um, you know, throughout our art history, the few classes I took, you know, that those were always my absolute favorite works of art. And so I very quickly sort of transitioned into um, still life, specifically botanicals, florals. And right away, it was very evident that that was going to be a lot more successful. Um, I also did a couple animals, um, like a fox and a deer that, um, you know, those were really popular motifs in in uh, children's decor at that time. And so those took off um, really quickly as well. Um, yeah, so I think that, and, and that has stayed true, I think, throughout the the rest of the trajectory of this business is that the coming back to the still life and the florals, the botanicals, that's, that's really what people have been most drawn to, which, has yeah, made, it sounds- which has made me happy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it sounds like um, finding that product market fit was a process, and I think that that's yes. really important to to realize that it took a lot of back and forth between you and potential consumers before you sort of understood how to make yes. something that would actually succeed in the marketplace. And that process often gets skipped, and I think is really, really important because it can lead to a lot of disappointment and, and frustration if, yeah. if it's not something that you're able to to be flexible on. So that's, that's interesting. And, you know, I think designing for paint by numbers is not the same as just traditional illustration. So talk a little bit about like the special process that needs to, you know, go through your mind when you are making um, a new illustration that's specific for paint by numbers. Right. Well, it's such a good question. Um, so the thing about paint by number is you've got some built-in limitations. So there's a limitation of colors uh, that can be involved in the illustration. And and when my original packaging wasn't as limiting as uh, the packaging became as I developed it more, but um, I did sort of start with a very small color palette and have kind of stuck with that throughout the trajectory of the business for lots of reasons. But um, yeah, so when you're designing for paint by number, you you know ahead of time how many colors you have to work with. You, um, you know that whatever you're illustrating, you're going to have to simplify it, you know, in a lot. You're going to have to simplify it. You're going to have to Usually what I do is I I will illustrate something um, and have a solid draft. And then I'll go back and I'll look at the size of all of the zones that I've illustrated. And I'll realize like, okay, if this was just for making a poster, this would be great. But this is for paint by number and somebody has to get a brush into this space. So I will go back and I will widen um, spaces that to set people up for success, essentially, because um, I think that's one of the the massive failures of actually mass-produced paint-by-number kits is that oftentimes the subject matter was never intended to be paint-by-number, and it is it is not stylized. It's like sometimes it's just photography that's been translated through technology into paint-by-number, um, and. I really wanted to take a different approach where much like the mid-century artists who were developing this craft, 
they were thinking strategically about how to make these achievable projects and enjoyable projects and successful for the people who were, um, you know, who were the end users. So that's always been the approach that I've taken. And I think it's served the business really well. I think it's served the customers really well. And I, I just think our kits are more enjoyable to paint than, than a lot of the, the more mass produced kits out there. And so it sounds like paint by number has kind of a history, like oh, it, yeah. it was like kind of invented maybe in the fifties or so yeah. do you know a little bit about why or how it came about? Yeah, I know a little bit. I'm definitely not, um, you know, extremely well-versed in the history of paint by number, but um, yeah, it was invented in the early 1950s. There was a company called the Palmer Paint Company that made craft paints and they were trying to create different avenues for um, for their paints and different ways for customers to, different reasons for customers to buy their paint and, and different ways to interact with it. And so they, they worked with an employee on staff um, named Dan Robbins and kind of had him develop uh, this uh, under a line, I think, called Craftmaster at the time. But he essentially is thought of as the inventor of paint by number, mm-hmm. um, although it fell under the umbrella of this larger company. And it was kind of their impetus to create something like this. He's the one that actually figured out how to do it. Um, and he was an artist himself, and he he went through the same process, I think, that that I go through when I'm illustrating something is kind of starting with an original piece of art that you've made and then figuring out how to actually translate that for this, um, you know, for this end product. And um, yeah, it really is, it really is fascinating when you know, they weren't successful right away. It, they, it took a couple years for it to really catch on. I think they had some of the same initial problems that I did in terms of their packaging, people not understanding what the product was, um, you know, just silly things like producing kits that were missing numbers in zones because they didn't have a good process down. Um, but eventually they figured it, figured it out and it really took off. And when it did, the artists and the art critics um, were quite upset. Actually, I was going to say, right? There's like a there's like an interesting stigma, yes. I guess, around paint by number that yes. it's not art or you're not an right. artist if you're doing this. And I don't know how you've resolved that in your mind or whether you've just embraced that and turned it on yeah. its head or how you think we about do. it. We do. I mean, we do embrace that. I mean, that is the whole beauty of it is that, you know, we're, we, there's so much benefit from the artistic process and not everyone feels like they have the talent to, um, or the bravery to just attempt something artistic on their own. But, but, but there's so much you can get out of that process, even if you're not an artist. So really when we think about what paint by number has to give. It's 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 mostly about the process. It's about giving somebody the confidence to pick up a paintbrush again that maybe they haven't done since they were eight years old. Um, it's about you know it's about putting away our screens at this point. You know it's about putting away our screens and just spending some time um, you know with 
some good music, perhaps a nice calm setting and just letting, you know, letting yourself be still and just spend some time with a paintbrush and some paint without without really having to make a lot of decisions. That's the other great thing about Paint by Number. So although it was panned by artisan art critics originally, um, I think, you know, they felt like it, it made the creation of art too accessible, which possibly felt threatening. Um, you know, possibly how I currently am feeling about um, AI, you know, I think maybe how they were feeling about paint by number back in the day. So, um, you know, anything that feels threatening is, you know, you're going to have, you're going to have a reaction against. So, but I think for the, the users, the people that were experiencing the art form, it was so positive, um, and has continued to be popular, although that popularity has waxed and waned over the decades. Obviously, we've seen a huge resurgence, mostly due to the pandemic, but, um, yeah, talk a little bit about what your business went through during the pandemic. Um, you know, I think the pandemic was really good to, craft specifically craft kit businesses yes yes exactly uh well by the time um late 2019 had rolled around so you know just a couple months before everything went crazy um i i knew that i was needing to hire um a first employee my business had scaled to the extent I was still working from home. I didn't have a commercial space. Um, I I had already had an initial um, national brand order from Blick and had fulfilled that, you know, from my basement with the help of some cousins and friends. And so I knew that there was definitely some scalability to the business. It had, there had been a natural progression of growth year over year. Um, and in early or in in the spring of 2019, I had joined FAIR, the wholesale marketplace, which, you know, continued to propel the wholesale sales uh, to new heights. And so, um, you know, things were headed in a great direction. Uh, when um, January of 2020 rolled around, I did pull the trigger on that first employee, which, you know, was kind of a mental um, and emotional and logistical hurdle. <laughs> and what, what did they do for you? What, like, what did you have them do? What did you delegate to them? Yeah. I mean, we started slow because, um, you know, I, I do have control issues. So uh, we started slow with the, the delegation process. But uh, I mean, I, I hired somebody that just had sort of a wide skill set and she did an amazing job. So she was assembling kits. She was fulfilling um, orders. Uh, eventually, she was mixing paint for me, which was one of the harder things for me to turn over uh, because you know, I, I, it was just very important to me that the paint colors stayed true to, to where we started with them. She did an amazing job. So, so she helped me build my confidence, I think, as an employer and as, as someone who could delegate and, and trust someone else to, um, you know, continue at the standard that I was, uh, you know, that I expected. So, um, we had had, a some local interest, uh, a little news coverage, and I had filmed a segment in my basement in 
January, actually, with a local news station, a little morning program, and they were going to wait to air it until spring break. So it was a couple months out um, from from when we filmed it. And everything happened so fast, you know, for all of us (laughs) in March of 2020. um, I, you know, as soon as as soon as we went into lockdown, which I think was March 13th, I actually got a text from the from this morning program and they said, hey, we were going to wait till spring break, you know, a couple weeks from now, but it's the, you know, everybody's at home today. We think this is the perfect segment to air. So we're going live with it today. Um, and it was an immediate uh, impact in terms of wow. local sales. Um you know, all of a sudden the website kept pinging and um, then Etsy started pinging. And um, I still at that point felt really unsure as we all did. We had no idea what was ahead of us. Um, there was just no way to project what was going to happen. And I just looked at my employee and I said, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to offer you work. I said, we'll just keep working until all the orders are filled and then we'll see what happens. And the orders never stopped. (laughs) So um, she had job security for sure. Um, But it was really crazy because, you know, we were all just like mentally and emotionally adjusting to what we were going through. And so business owners were doing the same thing. And, you know, where the individual sales did take off pretty immediately. It took a while for wholesale to figure out that this was actually a great product for lockdown um, and a great product to help everybody kind of get through the the difficulties that we were, um, you know, that we were embarking on. So wholesale, I would say it took about, um, it took two to four weeks, I think, for um, for orders to pick up. Initially, they dropped off. We had a couple order cancellations where people just didn't know what was going to happen. So they said, let, you know, if you haven't shipped my order, please, let's just, can we cancel it? Um, but then pretty quickly, you know, retail shops started to pivot and figure out like, okay, how, how am I going to adjust to this new landscape? Um, how, how am I going to still, you know, what products am I going to source that are going to be um, timely and, um, you know, that people are, are seeking right now. And so, like you said, the craft kit became one of the most popular things anyone could sell. Um, so store owners figured out they could do curbside pickup. Uh, a lot of store owners at the beginning, I don't know if you remember this, were doing home delivery. <laughs> so, um, everybody was where I think that two to four week period where it was so people, um, shop owners were working on their websites so they could sell sell stuff online because a lot of people didn't have products for sale on their website. They just had like contact information and some galleries of photos. So, um, so while everyone was pivoting, um, you know, we, we, we realized that this, this trajectory was, was only going to grow. 
So it got to um, where like in May, I believe, I actually had to cut off wholesale orders because we were so inundated, we couldn't keep up. I had been lucky enough that one of my sisters um, had been home in the first few weeks of the pandemic, her, the clinic she worked for had, had closed. And so I brought her in, you know, she felt like a, like a safe person to bring into the basement. So then there were three of us just sort of pumping out orders. Um, and, but it became pretty clear pretty quickly that I was going to need to find a facility outside of my basement. Um, one of the major reasons being for safety, because I knew we needed to add staff, but we I couldn't just keep cramming people in my basement. I mean, you know, um, so we, we, by June, we had moved into a local space. Um, I was space sharing with a friend who had a business. Um, and then we did have to move again about six weeks later um, into another space. And both of these spaces uh, were zoned for retail, which it just so happened that was the space that was available. And, you know, because everything was in lockdown um, and, you know, coming out of lockdown at that point, but still people weren't out shopping. So I thought, oh, how how hard could it be to maintain some kind of retail presence, you know, <laughs> right now during a pandemic? Not hard at all. I'm sure I can just tack that on to everything else. And so that's what we did. We had a retail storefront for two years um, where we used, you know, like four-fifths of the space of the square footage for manufacturing and like 200 square feet in the front for retail. And are you still in that sort of space or did you, is it now not a retail space at all? I moved out of that retail space about a year and a half ago um, after two years of being there. Um, I just felt like I couldn't do the retail component justice. And I really, it's hard for me not to give every, not to give things my all and not to have them be up to the standard that I would want them to be at if I could give it my full attention. Um, and we also just needed more space for the manufacturing and shipping. And I, and I, I knew that, you know, for, for the success of the business, what we needed to scale was that part of the business. The the retail part was less scalable. And um, so that's what we did. We made a shift. And so now we're in a manufacturing only, you know, plus curbside pickup location um, less than a mile from where we started. And I know you had said you were asked to do a party at a local craft shop. Yeah. And you still offer local parties at the, the, the canvases are six by six, I think. So they're yes. a smaller scale, two hour kind of situation. And you send someone like an instructor essentially to, to yes. help with all of that. Um, but then you also started offering virtual party supplies yes. um, kit, and not just the kit, which, you know, you can send out to all of your guests and then mm-hmm. everyone can get together on Zoom and, and paint together, which is super fun. But there's also like fun add-ons that make it more of a treat as well, which I thought was really cute. Yeah, we do have a group sales program for 20 or more. Um, and that was kind of, I mean, the 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 painting via Zoom with friends was obviously an outcropping of the pandemic. And an idea actually that customers brought to me, not that I thought of, but I would just hear from customers that, 
oh, I purchased a kit for myself and I shipped one to my mom and we live in two different states, but we're, we're getting together twice a week on Zoom to paint, you know, what it helps calm our nerves and gives us something to do together while we're all just waiting out this pandemic. Um, so, you know, I knew that that was something that had some legs to it because people were doing it without, you know, <laughs> you know, coming up with it on their own. So, yeah, we do have a program for people that want to host their own party. Um, of course, now it's much more an in-person yeah. uh, type of activity. And we we made a shift. I mean, we made a choice during the pandemic to really focus on self-care, like our marketing around these kits is around self-care. And now we've kind of made the shift um, as we've come out of that and people were kind of craving like in-person social interaction. Um, we specifically created a smaller project with a smaller project time specifically be- to be done in the company of other people um, in an effort towards social self-care, which is the new language we're using around, you know, it, just because we've come out of the pandemic doesn't mean that we we don't need to take care of ourselves, but maybe now we can do it, you know, with friends and family in the same room. So <laughs> that's that's how we've kind of shifted that. And and there are some add-ons on our website if you if you are shipping virtually. Um, to friends and family or, or larger groups, um, organizations, that kind of thing. You know, we've we've sourced from some local, some other local makers. We've got fantastic chocolate shop in town. We've got an amazing um, handmade soaps and that sort of thing. That if you really want to give somebody a self care experience, you know, you can you can add to that that shipment going out. And, you know, it sounds like self-care, social self-care, that's one of um, kind of your underlying beliefs of the business, I guess. Like, and, and I wondered, I know you have a few sort of tenants that you really, uh, uh, you know, subscribe to as far as the way that this business is going to function. So maybe you can, I think maybe um, eco-friendliness is, is probably another one, but just gleaning Definitely. that from, from reading your website. But yeah, maybe you can tell yeah. us some of those guiding principles because I feel like it's inspiring to come up with a set of guiding principles for your own business. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. I I knew when I started this business that I just, you know, I'm I'm a little bit anti-consumerism myself. So it was, it was kind of a, a jump for me to think about bringing a new product to the marketplace. And I wanted to do it in a way that was responsible. Um, and I, I knew from the beginning that, you know, I was going to make some strategic decisions that might cost more, you know, might logistically be a little bit more difficult, but I wanted to stay true to some of those, um, that way of thinking about bringing a product um, to the marketplace. So the eco-friendly part was always important in sourcing of packaging, um, sourcing of paints, which are American-made paints, um, all of the components, to the best of my ability, they're sourced as locally and produced as locally as possible. Um, brushes are really hard hard to find made domestically, but we work with a U.S.-based company that um, manufactures the brushes overseas. So that's the one component that we haven't figured out how to get domestic. Um, and that's not, you know, 
I love American made products. I also love, you know, um, fair trade products, you know, but it's just, it's, it's hard to figure out how to, how to source those and develop your own relationships. Um, so at this point, um, our brushes are, are the one component that are, that are made overseas. So, yeah, we, um, the, the self-care aspect of it, I, I think kind of came, as an as a you know product of the pandemic, I was working with a marketing contractor at the time. Just happened to have brought her on board in January of 2020 at the same time as I had brought my first employee on board, and she really helped me through that process of figuring out how to um, what kind of messaging to put out around this product and the self care angle was, I mean, kind of fell in our lap. <laughs> it was so obvious. Um, so, so that was initially, you know, a really important component of what we do. Art accessibility in general, I would say, and this goes back to why paint by number is, um, is so cool is, is because it's got a really low barrier to entry. So that was one of the the tenants that we started with as well, just making the creative process accessible to as as many people as were interested to benefit from from that. Um, I knew that any product line I was going to create, I I wanted it to be inclusive, so that you know, like I said, I started out with a lot of um, female figures and, and that sort of thing. And I wanted to make sure that everybody saw something that felt representative to them. So, um, that has always been an important part of, um, you know, how we select subject matter. We did have a line of, we do have a line of history makers, which I'm really proud of. Um, we market them specifically through, a an agency that provides programming and entertainment packages for college campuses. So we have uh, history maker packages for each history month. Um, so women's history month and black history month. And, um, and that has been a really successful program and something that I'm really proud that we offer. Um, and because of those partnerships, we've been able to continue to offer those kits uh, and just having like a local workforce, I think obviously when I started, I didn't know that I would ever be hiring a single employee, but that became a principle um, along with the, you know, the the locally made aspect that not only are we sourcing locally, but we're also making it right here, you know, in the suburbs of Portland, Oregon uh, with a small staff and my staff, you know, I, I, I ended up hiring a bunch of artists, you know, they're, they're all ex incredibly creative people. And, you know, I think working here enables them to, to create in their off hours as well. So, um, and the, the feedback they provide me is just, instrumental to this the um the designs we come up with and um yeah it's 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 really been fantastic i think i've no i knew from the beginning that there there needed to be a charitable component to this business as well cuz that's just important to to me personally and again sort of helps with me offsetting um you know the fact that i'm just putting more products out into the world and, and the fact that 
that we could then also um, contribute back to the community as a result of those sales that that makes it worthwhile for me. So we do uh, contribute 5% of our net profits to um, eco and social charities and organizations. Most of those are local. So um, yeah, the brand mission has always been uh, really important and makes me feel like, you know, the business has a sense of purpose beyond just bringing a product um, and getting a product into people's hands. So I, um, that will always be something that's really important. And before we talk about your recommendations, I also just wanted to touch on your collaborations. So yeah. I first was introduced to Alcrave through your announcement that you were doing a collaboration with Mary Englebright, which is so awesome. And then there's also the Leica um, uh, collaboration. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how those came about. Did you go and reach out to them? Did they come to you? Do you have plans to sort of continue with, you know, trying to find more collaborative efforts with these sort of big name um, you know, creative houses. Yeah. You know, um, over the years, I've probably, you know, I've had a lot of people reach out and and ask about collaborations and not, you know, not big names or anything, but just people wondering if I could produce kits um, from their artwork, uh, that kind of thing. And it's just, it's never really felt, I mean, for one thing, like our, pro- our profit margins are pretty small, you know, (laughs) like we're, we're sourcing so carefully or, you know, we're USA made. And so there's, there's just not a lot of extra margin there for, for bringing in licensing or, um, you know, sharing a profit with another artist, that kind of thing. So I really had not signed up for any of those as they'd come along. Um, I hadn't completely ruled it out, but it just hadn't quite been the right fit. And uh, in January, a year ago, I was at our first East Coast trade show at the Atlanta market. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I was in the um, Made in the USA section. And it pretty early on, day I think it was day one or day two of this five-day trade show, um, a woman just walked right up to the booth and and um, asked me if I would be interested in a collaboration. And I said, probably not. You know, it just, like I said, our margins are small and, and it just really has to be the right fit. You know, it's a, we manufacture in large quantities of canvas. So um, in order to keep our pricing where it's at, you know, it's probably the quantities aren't going to be right for you, that kind of thing. And she said, oh, well, that's a bummer. I, I work for Mary Inglebright and we just, you know, we kind of researched and we looked you up and we're really hoping that we could do a collaboration with you. And I said, oh, Mary Inglebright. Oh, <laughs> <Hold> <laughs> now that you mention it. <laughs> just a sec. <laughs> so um, that was really fun because I had, you know, um, I was in high school in the 90s and when, and I don't know if that was sort of her first, you know, where she first kind of came on the scene, but that's when she came on the scene for me. I know she she was uh, putting things out there back in the 70s and 80s, I believe as well. But she came on the scene for me in the 90s. And um, I had, you know, really, lo- really loved her artwork and her aesthetic. And 
So it was a name I knew, it was a a style I knew, and um, that was pretty exciting for me. So we, um, you know, everybody went home and we continued to talk about it. And we got on a Zoom call with with Mary and, um, you know, she was just so supportive about us adapting her artwork. And, you know, I felt really um, nervous because, you know, as we've discussed with Paint by Number, it's very stylized, you know, you have to alter things to make it workable for this this craft. And I was just like, Mary, it's, it's probably not going to look just like your stuff. Are you okay with that? And she was just really affirming and like, oh, yeah, just do whatever, you know, I've... <laughs> I've been looking at this stuff for decades. So, you know, just have fun with it. And, and we really did. So it has been a really successful partnership for both of us, I think. And one of the reasons why it made sense is because they were so committed to selling the kits themselves through their own outlets. So it wasn't like they were just going to charge us a licensing fee and, you know, just make money off of all our work. They were going to work hard to sell this product also. And that's really what made it doable for us. Um, And same with Leica. I mean, Leica is just an amazing film company. They're known for their stop uh, animation films like Coraline their first film came out about 15 years ago, and that's kind of um, their biggest claim to fame. It's just an amazingly imaginative film, um, and you watch it, and you just can't believe it's stop motion, but it is. Um, and so when I got the email from Leica, I, I, you know, my initial reaction was yes. I think, <laughs> I think because it had gone so well with Mary Englebright and... I thought, okay, so as long as we can do this in a way where 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 they're they're committing to this product also, you know, we can make this happen. And so they've been um doing a great job selling it. That those kits are exclusively sold through uh through their merchandise website. So and that's been a great partnership as well. And, you know, both kind of intimidating for me, you know, <laughs> the fake it till you make it gal over here inside me is freaking out a little, but, um, yeah, it's been, uh, both have been really great experiences. And I, I mean, I think that you, you're just getting started. This is what I would say. Like, I, <laughs> I could just, I, I think there's like a, such a bright future, so many interesting ideas and opportunities for collaborations. Like I could see a collaboration with anthropology, like all kinds of things right. are coming to my mind. So, um, <laughs> I think, uh, I, I'm excited to see where it all goes. Um, I want to make sure we get to your recommendations because you have a couple of really good ones. So yeah. you wanted to recommend Dan Robbins book, whatever happened to paint by numbers. Yes. So this is the, you know, the little I know about the history of paint by number, most of that I've gotten from this book. So it's, um, a book he he wrote himself. He, as we spoke about earlier, he is the one who's credited um, to be the inventor of paint by number. Although he'll say he took the concepts from 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 artists like Michelangelo, you know. And um, so he, um, yeah, he wrote this book. It's funny. It kind of talks about the the struggles and the pitfalls of bringing this Craftmaster product to life. And, you know, I read it just, I don't know, a year and a half ago or so. And I thought, why didn't I read this seven years ago yeah. <laughs> when I started? Because I was just like shaking my head reading this book thinking, oh gosh, yeah, I went through all that same. Why did <laughs> I, I should have read this book. That would have been really helpful. 
Um, <laughs> so- well, good to know. Like, good to know about. I've never heard of it, so I'm I'm interested to take a look. Um, and you also wanted to recommend Melanie B's Creative Studio on YouTube. She does um, kit reviews and has painting tips as well. Yes. So I didn't really know about Melanie B's um, until a few months ago, and she reached out and asked if she could review one of our kits. And so I went to her YouTube and I was just blown away. Um, she she reviews a lot of paint by number kits from different makers, um, other types of craft kits as well. And she just has really helpful content on how to start a project and um, be successful with it. So I, I highly recommend. Um, she also always does her nails you know, and she has this great Southern drawl. So she's just fun to listen to. Yeah, totally. I love uh, YouTubes like that. So I'm going to subscribe. And then you also wanted to recommend Falcon board, which is like a foam core display board. Yeah, this is, this probably sounds super random, but, um, uh, you know, I've worked a lot with, um, foam core and gator board in my work as a graphic designer. Um, you know, we used it a lot for like marketing posters and that kind of thing. It's just horrible for the environment. It's just terrible. And so I, um, you know, the, the dilemma becomes, well, how do I create something for marketing purposes that has some durability and strength to it, but that isn't, you know, a blight on the, you know, to the earth. So, um, Yeah, I found this product. It's great. It's like a heavy duty corrugated board that you can use essentially as a replacement for foam core. We recently used it in a really fun promo video we did for Leica where we made a giant, um, a giant, we essentially like blew up a paint by number kit package and cut out the hole where the canvas would be and like brought a paint by number kit to life. But um, this, this product can be laser cut, can be printed Mm. directly onto it. It's really cool. It comes in like quarter inch and half inch. And if you're, you know, I I just think it's, it could be something that could be helpful to anyone, you know, at craft show displays, that kind of thing. It's, it's a really great product. So totally throw that out. Yeah. That's really good to know about. Well, so thank you for that. And thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. It was awesome talking to you. My pleasure. Thanks for going easy on me. (laughs) (laughs) And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was sponsored by the Academy for Virtual Teaching, a community of creative entrepreneurs building proficient, profitable, and professional online teaching businesses. In the Academy for Virtual Teaching's Pro Membership, they can help you develop the skills needed to organize, film, edit, and add online education to your business model. They invite you to join their community of supportive colleagues as they share their creativity with students around the world. So check it out at the Academy for Virtual Teaching. Thank you so much to the Academy for Virtual Teaching. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.